Hey guys, welcome to the Abe Summer Series, a nine episode series dedicated to energy and recovery. I'm your host, Paula Glover, President and CEO of the American Association of Blacks and Energy. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. For all things Abe, visit us at aabe.org and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's topic, leadership in crisis, what good leaders do in time of crisis. And I'm really excited to share with you and to have um, to share with you our speaker for today, Mr. Robert Wilkinson, Rob. Um, he teaches courses on negotiation and leadership um, in team and group dynamics at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Um, Rob has an interesting background that he is gonna share with you um, as he moves through your presentation but I, I am um, really excited to hear his story. I think that you will really be all fascinated with it. Before we get on to our summer series, I just wanna briefly shout out to you all that our Abe 2020 conference, Energy We Imagine, is going virtual. So we are taking it to the cloud August 18th through 20th, right here online, and we hope to see you all there. If you have not already registered, please, I encourage you to do so. It will be the same great content. It will be the same fantastic speakers. We'll do some coaching and some networking. Um, go to our website, www.aabe.org, and register today. So with that, let me just share a little bit with, with you about Mr. Rob Wilkinson, um, and then we're gonna hand this all over to you. As I said, Rob is at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's on the faculty there, and he was previously a faculty member at Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Um, he supports lots of Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, international organizations, and, char and charities to help them build their negotiation, leadership, and team management skills. And in doing so, help them increase their overall effectiveness. He has more than 25 years of experience in over 50 countries across the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. And so with that, please join me in a virtual welcome to Mr. Robert Wilkinson from Harvard. Rob, so glad to have you with us. Thank you very much, Paula, for that introduction. And it's great to see everybody uh, virtually. And uh, sorry I can't be with you. Um, and what my plan was for today was uh, really to just share with you a little bit about my background and my story, then to talk a little bit about some of the leadership principles and concepts that we focus on where we teach in the School of Government, which is a public policy, public service oriented school, which has to deal with multi-sector engagements of all kinds. So our graduates go off to work in all, you know, private, nonprofit, and public sector, particularly looking at ways to deal with collective problems and how to lead in those situations. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit to end with my, the four kind of elements that I see are, are most important when it comes to the question of leadership in crisis. Uh, and I call that the 4P framework so that's, that I'll share with you, the 4P framework of the four top main uh, issues that I want to focus on for leadership. So let me just quickly start with um, a bit of background about myself. So I am um, originally from around here in Boston, where I'm based right now, uh, near Harvard. And I, I'll just share this with you because it's so relevant to what we're talking about today, I think, with the crises that are going on and the protests in the street, which is that... I studied, like many people in the energy sector, um, I have a technical background. I studied engineering. In fact, it was material science and engineering. I did undergrad and grad school, decided to work in technology. I got a job at Intel Corporation in Silicon Valley, uh, working as a staff scientist. 
but the thing that I would share is that I also at a, you know, early on in my college career, in fact, before I even had my first lecture as a freshman, I happened to notice on campus these stalls that had, you know, community service opportunities. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I should probably, um, you know, get involved somehow. And so I got volunteering for homeless shelters and for uh, civic organizations that were helping train homeless people to get uh, jobs and working with abused children and at-risk youth, et cetera. So all kinds of different um, challenges that were going on in the city that I was working to volunteer to support whilst being a professional engineer. Early on in my career, I made the decision to actually then, you know, I was so focused on the stuff I was volunteering in and so passionate about that, I decided to leave engineering entirely and just work on that social justice stuff. Um, so I really felt very uh, kind of compelled to do this. I decided to focus on areas that were in the most need, in my view, which was places around the world where people had rights being abused in situations that were unstable for them um, and in, in poverty, basically. So I just focused on working in those kinds of environments. So I started to work in Nicaragua, of all places, in the 90s, rebuilding after the Civil War engineering projects which was ultimately a social project because it was between Sandinista and Contra communities. And then I went off to work in Cambodia and in Laos with the Red Cross and Save the Children. I uh, worked in Angola for two years with the United Nations peacekeeping mission back and forth between government and rebel held areas. I spent three years in Rwanda after the genocide working on projects with Hutu and Tutsi communities. So all leadership and negotiation in crises. Um, this was my, my career for many, many years. And then um, I moved back to Boston about 12 years ago and been, have been consulting and teaching classes on these very topics uh, since then. I am not an expert in the energy sector. I do do a decent amount of consulting though, uh, mainly with the oil sector, but I've done a little bit with other sectors as well. So I have looked at questions of leadership and challenges in that environment, although I'm no expert. I saw that Chevron's logo was one of the big logos for sponsors. And I did some fascinating consulting work with Chevron over the years. So I'm familiar with your world a little bit um, and excited to talk to you a little bit more. So that's just a quick background about me and where I'm coming from on this material. Um, and we will have a discussion, I think, later on about how this stuff links to what's going on in the world right now. So I'll hold off on that, but certainly please keep those questions in mind. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and share my PowerPoint. Um, I hope that everyone can see it. Oops, let me go back up one second here. Um, I'm going to share this and then I'm going to maybe ask uh, for the organizers to send me a quick text to make sure that they can see everything okay. Uh, so yes, here we are. So hopefully um, send me a text with a thumbs up, maybe you can, or chat, that you see a slide that says leadership effectiveness in crisis uh, for today. And I hope that you can see we're going to advance here. And the question I just want to focus on is the question of Leadership, that's what we're talking about, right? Leadership in crisis, but before we can talk about leadership in crisis, we have to first just be clear what we mean when we use the word leadership. Now, one of the things that I can um, tell you is that there are so many um, versions of the definition of leadership that you can almost, you know, there's more definitions than there are people who teach this topic. So that makes it very complicated, but it also means that, you know, we have a lot of thinking to do about what we mean when we say leadership and what kind of leader we want to be. Let me share a handful of definitions for us just to think about before we get into the application of these things. So a few definitions here. One is that leadership is a process of motivating people to work together collaboratively to accomplish great things. Those are a couple of leadership scholars. Um, 
Warren Bennis, who's an industry leader now an academic, but he's, he said the first job of a leader is to define a vision for the organization. Leadership is the capacity to translate vision into reality. And here's a final one by a female who is a admiral named Grace Hopper. I mentioned she's a female because she uses the term men, but really we mean people here. But she says, you cannot manage men into battle. You manage things. You lead people. So what's interesting about some of these definitions is I think it just shows you uh, the essence ultimately of leadership is bringing people along with you into your vision of the future. Um, and there's a big distinction you're hearing Admiral Hopper lead us to, which is the distinction between management and leadership. They're not the same thing at all. So another, I'm just gonna do a couple more and then we'll move into this more of the substance. But here's a professor, our colleague at Harvard Business School. He says, conversations about leadership often turn into discussions about how individuals can keep large, complex, unwieldy organizations reliably operating, uh, operating reliably and efficiently. That's not leadership, that's management. Uh, leadership is associated with taking an organization into the future. So that's, that's what leadership is fundamentally about. Um, it's not about, it, it's about vision, about empowerment, and most of all, producing useful change. So it's not just having a vision to have a vision. We've got to get somewhere in the end. So leadership is about actual outcomes, ultimately. And if we're not focused on that, we're not really exercising leadership. Let me share with you one final definition that I really find fascinating. And this is from Stanley McChrystal, the four-star general who led forces in Afghanistan, among other places. He wrote a book called A Team of Teams. And his way of looking at leadership, he says, is like Gardner. I, hear, I see a question just popped up. By the way, I certainly will make these PowerPoints of, uh, slides available. Someone just is asking. And I believe that the recording of this will be available as well. So what does Stanley McChrystal say? The heroic hands-on leader whose personal competence and force of will dominated battlefields and boardrooms for generation has been overwhelmed by accelerating speed, swelling complexity, and interdependence. The temptation to lead as a chess master controlling each move of the organization must give way to an approach as a gardener enabling rather than directing. So now we can have a really interesting conversation. And What do you think that General McChrystal means by gardener? Well, I think you get a sense of it a little bit in, this, in the idea that, you know, the, the, this old fashioned notion that this single person at the top will solve everything as this heroic leader isn't really what great leadership is about, even in the military. And I'm sure there's former or current even servicemen and women on the call now. Um, it's not true that you just order people around and they all just go off and do what you told them to and you have no problem, even in the military. You actually have to enable people to follow you. So that's an interesting framing of gardener for leader. Um, let me just share a couple of other tensions within the world of leadership here. We touched on a couple already. I'm going to share five altogether. So the first one we just touched on, leadership versus management. It's not the same thing. Uh, and some of you may have read this great book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's been around for a while, one of the sort of leadership classics. But he talks about building a a road in the forest, Stephen Covey. You know, if you're building like a highway in the forest and you have a team of people and you're um, doing contracts to get land access and you're digging up the road and there's people mixing cement and there's surveyors and somebody climbs the tallest tree and says, hey, we're in the wrong forest. People on the ground say, well, wait, we're, we're making progress here. Shut up. You know, let's get back to work. And a leader has to say, well, wait, are we even in the right forest? A manager might be defining the way that we're going to build that road effectively and efficiently. Um, but we have to figure out if we're even broadly supporting the right mission overall, which is a different question. 
There's doing versus enabling. So McChrystal, you're a gardener, you're nurturing others to blossom. You're not having to do it all. Tough challenge for a lot of leaders because you got to be a leader by doing great delivery work. You know, you led teams and you led high profile projects. You did well, you got recognition, you got promoted. And now your job is not to do always, but to enable others, which is hard for a lot of leaders. I am not mixing up leadership with seniority. So leadership can be exerted at any point, at any time, at any level in the organization and the organogram. You can be the least senior person in the room and exert leadership by challenging things, by proposing things, by changing processes, by refocusing the discussion. There's all kinds of things you can do. So we do not in interchange leadership with seniority. Similarly, it's not the same thing as having authority. If you have control and you're authorized to make decisions over certain things, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're exercising leadership. You know, if, you, if people are on the bus and you're driving, you take a left turn or a right turn, they're all going with you because they're forced to go with you. But that's not necessarily bringing people along with you, which is exercising leadership. It's not the same as authority. Think of the greatest leaders in history. Some of them had no authority. You know, Martin Luther King is in the news a lot right now. I mean, he didn't have a line management sort of structure with all the people who followed him. Um, he had not, it wasn't like he was managing a budget and giving them annual reviews. This was exercising leadership without any authority, right? So uh, that's a major distinction. Finally, this balance between humility and confidence. Um, that's a real struggle for a lot of people because you wanna be confident as a leader, but in order to listen to all the important views that are going on around you, you also simultaneously have to develop that sense of humility. And doing both at the same time can be a challenge for some people. Um, I am going to share a couple more things and we'll take a break in a short while. So what I wanna get into now is that those are some broad definitions. I wanna focus on some four key skills that I have come across in the 25 years I've been doing this in all these different environments around the world that I think are fundamental for great leaders and particularly for crisis situations. So number one, how to deal with people effectively and skillfully who really deeply disagree with you. It's just not just about, you know, you all kind of have a different idea of how we should go forward, but you have fundamentally different views about the world. How do you engage in that area skillfully? Number two, recognizing that if you're doing things in groups, there's predictable group dynamics that will emerge. And so you can make choices to determine a little bit the extent to which those dynamics go in a way that you want versus a different way. Always remembering the human and emotional impacts of what we're doing as leaders. We skip over this so often as leaders. We say it and we use lip service, but often we actually skip over the part of really thinking about actually our own emotions and the emotions of the other people around us. Finally, there's the idea, we, we saw this term vision in some of the definitions. Um, so the idea is like, you know, we're telling a story all the time about where we think the future is going and what it should be. We're also telling a story to ourselves about who we are in the world too. And that balance of crafting a vision and bringing people on board with you whilst being open and humble enough to recognize that other people have a different view about what the future should look like itself is one of the key leadership tensions that we have to manage. You gotta have a story, you gotta have a vision, and you have to listen to other people's version of that so you can jointly craft a vision people can get behind. So those four areas lead us to what I was referring to as the 4P framework. So those words are right in the definitions, multiple perspectives, process management, the human and emotional impact on people, and the vision of story that you project for your followers. Perspective, process, people, and projection. So that's the 4P framework. What I'm gonna do is just share one slide each on the four of these. 
and then uh, wrap with a sort of final quote about this, give you some extra resources to look at if you want more reading and learning, and then we can go into uh, discussion as a group. So let me just touch on these four here that I've just sort of set up for you as the 4P leadership framework. First one, perception. I won't read all the definitions word by word, but just to say the way that we understand and interrogate information that we receive. And I'm just gonna stop sharing for a second and talk about this real quick. So. Um, Perception, what, when I reason I mention that is that um, at the heart of almost all collective problems that I've worked with leaders on, there's a very strong view by one group that this is fundamentally inherently a conversation about X, and another group says it's actually about Y. And our tendency when we're in the middle of that discussion and we have a very clear view about that, what do we tend to do? We tend to make our point we tend to make our argument we marshal all the evidence and data that we have and we push it on people and say this is why i'm right about this question you know this is the reason that i think we should take path x instead of y and we're really rewarded for that over our careers we are very good at that we're very articulate about making our case and marshalling our data the trouble is what the research shows is when you deeply disagree with somebody, what's far more persuasive is to start on the basis of not pushing your argument and making your case, which we call advocacy, advocating your argument, but rather inquiry, pulling from them their version of their story of how they understand the way the world works. This is not to say you agree with them or accept it. It's simply to say, you can't really craft an effective argument for someone if you're not sure what their full set of logic and reasoning is. And the second you're like, oh, I already know what they think. Now you're really moving way beyond humility and you're not actually saying to yourself, um, I need to deeply understand where they're coming from before I say anything. Not our natural instinct when we disagree. Someone's putting in the comment here, appreciative inquiry. That's exactly right. Uh, some people have different terms for this, uh, which is like, you know, invest investigative inquiry, like you're an investigator, um, curiosity-based questioning. It's all about understanding what their perspective is first before we make our own case. Um, let me go back to the presentation here. So the key insight here, the key concept is balancing advocacy versus inquiry. I'm not saying never make your statement and never make your claim about what you think matters. I'm just saying be careful to not leap to that without first demonstrating some minimal curiosity about why the other side thinks what they think. Number two, process. The way we engage with groups and teams, that's basically it. Um, one more time, I'm gonna stop sharing and just talk a little bit about this. So once you have a group of people together, we have a whole range of dynamics that are predictable. One of them is called groupthink, uh, where you've all seen this, you know, you start to get a life of its own and the sort of conversation goes in a certain direction and everybody's sort of like, yeah, that's a good idea, we're on board, let's just do that because it feels good to reach consensus sometimes and say, yeah, we're making progress. Trouble with groupthink is it leads us further away from the idea about, um, you know, uh, humility and inquiry, understanding, recognition that there's different ways of looking at things. Um, we need to stop and manage the process in a way that we can learn something. So for example, I've seen, take a meeting. I've seen managers and leaders go into a meeting and they say, okay, this is what I think we should do, but I'm open to hearing other ideas. Now that you've said that, you've actually blew it. You, you can't have, people aren't going to be as open to share their ideas because you've just announced what you're partial to already. And that affects the dynamic in the room. If you, who you call on first, uh, how you frame up the discussion. If you say, I'm not even going to say a word here, just over to you. It's very different than saying, um, here's one idea. Does anyone else have another idea? You've already anchored it. I've seen leaders say, 
this is the best idea we have right now that I'd like to do. But if anyone has a better idea, I'm willing to listen to it. So you've just threw down this challenge. Now debate me and outdo my idea. That's what you're saying as a leader. Um, so we have to, every decision we make in a group has a process consequence. Even things that leaders do socially, let's take, you know, again, in the context of the things that people are protesting so angrily about right now, about racial justice and um, equity, there's this un, you know, unintended consequence we sometimes have with process management. So I sometimes work with leaders who say, I want to build more of a spirit of like team. And, you know, it's not just that they come to work, but we want to build the team spirit. Great. What did you do? Well, I said, let's go out for drinks on Friday, you know, and some people came, some people didn't, you know, it didn't help. Okay. So then I'll say to myself, well, what did you, what are you, what are the implications of saying social time at work drinks on Friday? Who are you including and who are you excluding by just saying that? Right. And now you stop and think, okay, well, wait a minute. Actually, what about people who don't drink? What about people who couldn't afford to go out? What about people who have childcare? What about people who don't want to spend social time with me? Uh, you know, what if I have a, so, okay, fine. Saturday, let's do a Saturday. Well, wait, now that's outside of work time. Oh, what about lunch during a work week? Well, now if you're a working person with childcare, um, brunch on Sunday, well, what if you're religious? What if you're, you know, uh, have uh, all of a sudden every choice you make has a consequence. And I'm not saying you can't, you have to accept those. We just have to be explicit and thoughtful about it. So everything we do, we privilege some groups with process without realizing it. Those are process choices. Okay, so that's uh, the second P, process. Um, key insight, asking yourself, who am I privileging with process with this process decision that I'm making? Third, people, human and emotional impact on people. Why does this matter so much? Um, I'm getting some questions and I'll, I'll get to your questions for sure. So people, let me just say a word about this, uh, emotions. So our colleagues have done some real research on emotions in the workplace for leaders. Guess what the number one answer people give when they're asked, how do you deal with emotions at work? Most say, what are you talking about? This is work, you know, we're not doing, you check your emotions at the door, right? Everybody says that. Uh, well, unfortunately, as human beings, we can't. We have emotions, we have them all day long, we're triggered and we can think of things that might even trigger other people in advance. So number one is recognizing that we have emotions and they affect our decision-making. In fact, if you get triggered in a meeting or anywhere where someone says or does something that gets you emotionally upset, the emotional part of our brain, blood flows there, energy flows there, and guess what happens? The rational or logical part of our brain, the cognitive function goes down and we lose actually, believe it or not, 15 points of our IQ when we're emotionally triggered. So. It's there, it's real, it affects decision-making. And the most important thing is to recognize I can't afford to not think about emotions and just skip over them. So I just say, look, you gotta tune into your emotions and theirs. Why am I so angry right now? Why do I feel so surprised? Uh, they seem to be upset or surprised by this or you know, blindsided. And sometimes you have to get very explicit about it saying, you know, you, saying just that, you seem to be upset by this. And they might say, I'm not upset, I'm disappointed. Okay, back to inquiry, well, tell me more about that. That's directly engaging the emotions rather than pretending they're not there and hiding from them. Last one, projection. The story we tell about ourselves and the future. Even the way you set up an agenda, um, that can be a huge question about like what you are signaling the priority of the discussion is about, right? Um, it, the story you tell yourself is about you know, who, who you are in the world, your identity, that can be threatened in a leadership situation where you stand for one thing and you feel like you're asked to do something else. So this is what we get into authentic leadership. So what I'm going to say here about projection, authentic leadership is projecting a vision, a story about the future 
for all four of these P's, actually, there's an internal element and an external element. I have an internal set of competing ideas, perceptions that I have to get straight before I can sit down and talk with someone. And then I'm dealing with people who have an external set of competing ideas or perceptions. People, I have my own process management, uh, sorry, process. I have my own process management, um, how I organize myself, what my patterns are, what my habits are, what my tendencies are. And then when I deal with groups, as I said, I bring groups together, there's process management questions. For emotions, I have to manage my own internal emotions and consider emotions of people externally. And then for projection, I have a story I tell myself about who I am in the world, and then I tell a story externally. Now, if the story I tell internally is wildly different than what I'm telling externally, and I think we all know some people a little bit like that, where they struggle to, they have two different versions, uh, that's a very hard place to be, and it's a very inauthentic form of leadership. And I think um, narrowing that gap is an important consideration. Now, I'm not saying just say what's on your mind. You know, that, that isn't uh, necessarily skillful strategic leadership. Uh, at the same time, if you have to put a ton of work into crafting every single word so that the image externally looks like you want it to look, um, because if you just said what you thought it would look very differently, then you may have a problem. So this is why projection, the story you tell about yourself in the future matters so much. So the key insight here is explicitly reviewing the implicit messages contained in your words and actions. So everything we say and do sends with it a signal about what we care about, right? That's an implicit message in our explicit words and actions. And we may want to refine our story. We have to revisit constantly. What are we saying about who we are? That's what a lot of people are going through right now, reawakening, like asking themselves, who do I really think I am and what do I stand for given what's going on in the society around me, as well as the stories you're telling to people in the future. Wrapping it all up together in one sentence for the 4P framework, great leadership involves building a vision from multiple perspectives using an an intentional and thoughtful process that connects with people on a compelling human level and projects a clear message of what your focus and priorities are for the future. So that's 4P leadership in a nutshell. Um, actually, I just have a couple resources I'll share with you. I won't talk them through now, but I'll just show you that I've done a very detailed four-part podcast series on this 4P leadership, which literally just came out last week. So it's hot off the presses. I'll share this in the slides. You can listen to them if you want. They're about 20 minutes to half an hour each. Um, there's some additional articles, my work with the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative, a case study I wrote, um, some other podcasts on how to have these conversations more effectively. Um, and the last thing I'll just end on before we open up for questions is just this idea that um, one of my colleagues at the Ed School, Bob Keegan, talks about when you're a child, what you learn about the world around you is making the unfamiliar familiar in other words there's things you haven't seen and experienced yet and you're learning about it for the first time and it's becoming familiar now when you're a leader though many years later and you're bringing people along with you especially in crisis what you have to do is actually make the familiar unfamiliar in other words we've had such an entrenched way of and i've heard this in the energy industry a lot like we've always done it this way one of the someone asked a question about generations and i'll talk about that in a second like intergenerational challenges as a leader um, young people, I have a lot of things to say about young millennials coming in and we don't understand why they think the way they think and behave the way they behave. They have the same story to say about people who are older though. And they say, well, I've always done it this way. It's, we always do it this way around here. Well, that's nothing, there's nothing more frustrating for someone trying to make change than hearing that. So you have to sometimes make the familiar unfamiliar, the sort of opposite of what we do as learning as a child. Similarly with how we're talking about race, there's a lot of entrenched thinking that we have to now make what seems familiar to, familiar to you, unfamiliar. And that's the central challenge of a leader and the central goal of this uh, 
this discussion, I think, today. So I'm going to end there. I'm going to open it up now back to the floor for uh, discussion. I just note that there's a couple of questions about age, factor into leadership, experience, et cetera. Um, but I will pause there. And what I'll do is maybe, I think, hand back to you, Paula, for facilitating the Q&A. Is that right? Sure, absolutely. So thank you so much for that. That was a, an excellent pre um, presentation. I actually have a couple of questions myself. I'm going to remind everybody um, at the bottom of your screen, you will see um, a place where it says Q&A. Please put your questions there. You'll also see a bubble that says chat. Um, we're really interested in what you guys think about this topic. And so the chat feature is an opportunity for you just to share your thoughts, um, even share your experiences if you'd like um, with one another. And it's a, another way for us to connect. Before we start the questions, I just want to remind you guys um, and thank you again for joining us for Summer Wednesdays with Abe. Next week, we will have um, another great webinar. Um, you will all receive a survey when this ends. We really encourage you to fill that out and get it back to us. Um, and at A2020, we are going to take it to the cloud and see you August 18th through 20th. So let's start with our questions. And I'm going to take a point of privilege here and Rob ask you the first one, which is I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about this idea of being um, humility versus confident in the leader. Um, I, I have a, a young son and we are always telling him um, that there are things that he does that exhibits leadership and his response to us was, is always, no, I'm trying to be humble. Um, and so I'd love, I'd love for you to um, just dive a little bit deeper into that idea and, and how we kind of negotiate through those two, uh, those two things. No, that's a really great question. And, and you know, I, I actually struggle this with, with this myself personally. And, you know, I have two daughters that are teenagers and we talk a lot about the difference between being confident and arrogant or, you know, being seen as pushy. And, you know, there's so many gendered layers to this, right? Um, being pushy versus assertive or, and that sort of thing. Um, I do think we all have to find a level that we are comfortable with. And that's where our greatest source of power comes from. So overstating your confidence, I think, can hurt you. Understating as well, it could really hurt you as well. So here's an interesting example. You just asked me about a second ago, like, how do I refer to myself when we were chatting in the prep for this call? And I was like, oh, yeah, everybody calls me Rob. So this is a really interesting thing, because at Harvard, for example, there's not many African-American faculty. In fact, I saw something that went around saying it's under 2% of the faculty at Harvard is African-American. So I'm a pretty small group of people. Um, and we all know about the, you know, we didn't get into in our discussion, but we can get into bias and so many studies that I could, you've all read, I'm sure, that are overwhelming about the uh, stereotypes people, conclusions they reach when they look at you. Um, right. Uh, even there's even resume studies. You've probably heard of the famous one that was done by MIT and I think Chicago and the study was called, um, are Emily and Greg more employable than Letitia and Jamal? And yeah. then overwhelmingly, the callbacks were way higher just for that first name change, Emily or Greg, same last name. And then they gave the same number of resumes, Letitia and Jamal, same last name. Nothing else was changed. And it was a 50% difference in callbacks just for the name. Um, so so you, we, my point is, I know... In general, we have to work hard to gain the respect that we want as leaders. I think people of color have to work even harder. Um, so therefore, there is a question people have of like, well, why a debate amongst my colleagues, African-American colleagues, just for example, take the word professor. Why do you say, call me Rob? Why don't you say professor? You know, and um, there's some of my colleagues who refuse to do that. They say, you know, I've worked too hard for this, for some kid to come in here and just say, hey, Rob, you know, 
On the other hand, there is something to be said for the point I made about authority. If too much of the reason they're, they're listening to me and I have to gain respect is that I'm using the authority that comes with my title or any other source, then that would concern me. I would hope that if I don't have that, I can find another way to build respect. But it's, it's got to be a personal choice. I don't judge my colleagues who say you have to use these titles to, you know, why lower yourself when people are working hard already to do that for you? Why join in and do it yourself? Um, I just think that authenticity is the most important thing. So we have to just be constantly reflecting. Is it appropriate for me to have a voice on this? If it is, then don't hold back. Um, but if you're saying, you know, I don't, if I'm only doing this to look a certain way or to just push in because I should have a voice and that's your only argument, then that's not com compelling or convincing to anyone. And that'll undermine your leadership authority, actually. It's Thank a great you. question. Never ending judgment we have to play with constantly. Now, I appreciate your, your um, input. So here's a, a question that we have, which says, um, how can a person gain leadership skills when you're not in a management role? And you touched a little bit on the fact that um, leadership has nothing to do with the title that you have or where you sit within an organization. So for those people um, who, are, who not, are not titled or not senior level or not supervisors or however you want to define it, how is it that they can still have leadership skills, create those leadership skills, and quite frankly, even demonstrate them in those organizations? Uh, you know, this is a very common question we get all the time, and it makes a lot of sense to me why we get the question. And here's also what I would challenge about the premise of the question, which is that um, what does leadership actually mean? You know, leadership, we looked at those definitions. Ultimately, it's bringing people on board with you to get where you want to go. You don't, you can be the least senior. So it doesn't even compute in my head in a way, the question, how do I gain leadership experience if I'm not in a management position? And the reason I say that is that, you know, you see children exerting leadership. People are exerting leadership who have nothing to do with an organization um, when they just get brought in for a moment and you're trying to bring people on board with you. It's not a matter of how senior you are. So I, let me share a couple examples. So I shared a case study that, so a lot of the work I did with the oil industry had to do with negotiating with, um, like when I mentioned Chevron, well, the project was, was, was managing four different groups that were deeply in disagreement. The political groups that were led by a very left of center uh, Green Party. It was in Richmond, California, only city in the country of 100,000 or more that had a Green Party candidate for mayor and with environmental groups and with local communities who were angry and with the union. So really interesting multi-party kind of challenge. Um, what that led me to work with these environmentalist groups who, and, and a lot of people ended up going to Paris for the Paris climate talks around this question. So I'm gonna, I, I shared in, the power, in this PowerPoint deck I just shared with you a, a link to a case study that I wrote about a leadership case study, which, is in, which we teach in our intro to leadership class. And it's a woman who's not even anywhere near the most senior person in a nonprofit organization, WWF, who's working with the energy industry to go to Paris to try to get a, a clause in the Paris Accords. To make a very long story short, you can read it in the case, she, you know, out of thousands of people manages to build this coalition, use process, touch people on an emotional level, have a compelling story to tell, uses the four Ps, and amazingly gets the agenda into the Paris final agreement and the 80 page summary and in the five page communique from the Paris Climate Talks, she succeeded with her team of 20 people. She's in her you know, 30s, a Mexican forest negotiator um, who used all these skills really well and got amazing results. And so the message was that it's not necessarily that you even need to be in a leadership position sort of officially to be constantly utilizing these leadership skills. Um, let me give you one other example. I worked for a few years 
supporting the, um, in the government, you probably know the SES, the senior executive service is like the top levels of, exec of, uh, of, of civil servants in the US. And the head of the civil service uh, was a guy named John Berry at the time. So, you know, at the time there was 2 million federal employees, right, that he had to deal with. So it was a pretty big leadership job. And he used to always tell this story at our training sessions um, in response to that kind of question, where he said that um, one, of the, one of the responsibilities you have when you run the civil service and the federal government is that you have to shut down buildings when there's bad weather. That's your call, uh, federal building. And so he said, John Barry is, you know, he's a cabinet member. Um, he, he, he is in bed and he gets this phone call from this employee, wakes him up and he, and he says, you, there's a storm happening in DC and like people are slipping and sliding on the road and I'm hearing it on the radio and someone on the radio says, um, you know, you're asleep at the wheel. And so I thought I would just pick up the phone and call you directly at home. This is a, the most, one of the most junior people in this, in the, you know, in the building. And so he wakes up and he talks to the media and he closes the buildings and all this stuff. And then a few weeks later, he sees that junior employee walking down the hall and um, he says to him, well, you look really sad and like depressed. What's, you know, first of all, thank you for calling me. And like, what's going on? And he says, oh yeah, you know, I was in a lot of trouble because I jumped so many levels and I didn't use the chain of command and I just called you directly. My supervisor was unhappy about that. And so John Barry said, wait a minute, this is crazy. You know, leadership should be exerted at all levels. So he created a new staff award across the entire federal civil service that was for people who took leadership at any level, you know, without being given a position of authority. And he made the boss give him that award, by the way. Um, so, so I guess my question is like, you know, we're always, my answer to the question is we're always given opportunities every single day to exert effective leadership. And we just keep building it and building it and building it regardless of whatever position in the hierarchy that we are. So awesome. I'll stop there. Yeah. Thank you. We're getting some great questions in. Here is um, an another one for you, right? So we talked a little bit, you talked a little bit about generational differences in leadership. Um, and if you want to expand upon that, that would be great. The, the second question though is how does age factor into leadership and does experience create a better leader? Okay, so um, so there's so many different aspects to age, but let me just say a couple of things about this. Uh, in a nutshell, we would not say that necessarily experience is a better, more experienced person is a better leader. Um, we can, you know, you can't say that. Otherwise, it would be very easy to straightforward to test this. Every every president that was, you know, by definition, then the older the president, the better, and the younger the president, the worse, or whatever, you know. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily say that it has uh, better leadership associated with more experience. Um, you, at the same time though, the more experience we have, if we are focused on learning, if we have a learning orientation about our experiences, then yes, that does tend to make us better leaders. But, but I'm always cautious to sort of make the assumption that they're gonna be better, mainly because you may have heard this phrase that there are people out there with 20 years of experience, but what they really have is one year of experience repeated 19 more times. And the reason that we have to be careful about that is if you haven't, you know, if you haven't been doing the work to constantly improve, and that's why even I've been doing this 25 years, if I don't go in, in the first lecture I give every class, that it's about humility and learning and, um, you know, constantly refreshing your assumptions, um, then I'm not doing my job as someone teaching leadership. So, um, so experience, if done the right way, should constantly improve your leadership skills. Um, in the abstract sense, though, I wouldn't, I'd be uncomfortable to say that age is the, 
you know, the, the metric by which we decide whether someone's going to be a good leader. And then also there's some indication in one of the questions there about the generational differences too, which age is a different factor in that. But, uh, you know, as opposed to just the experience you have, you represent a generation, which can be problematic. So um, some people say, depending on how you look at it, there's at least five, if not six generations in the workplace. If you start from World War II, uh, baby booners, Gen X through to millennials, you know, there's, there's a quite a range of generations. Again, I would say almost consistently, though, through the years, one generation says, these young folks here don't get it at all. When I was there, like, we really knew how things worked properly, and now they're coming in here and messing it all up. That's pretty consistent, unfortunately. <laughs> one of my longest standing consulting clients, about 10 years, is the National Urban League. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Mark Morial is the president, and he talks all the time about the internal struggle, both in the Urban League and um, the NAACP, my neighbor down the hall at Harvard is uh, Cornell West, who was running the NAACP for a, long, for a few years. And they always talk about this generational struggle, like, you know, and it's, they're both valid, both like the young, younger, the older group is like, look, we know what it means to protest and what gets things done. And we've been on the streets and you can't, this slacktivism thing where you click likes and stuff, like that's not really protesting. That's not, you know, and we see now people putting themselves out on the streets, which is what the older generation is saying. The other side though, is they're saying you can't protest your way out of everything. Like, you know, it's not all handmade signs on city hall that's gonna make change in the current society. We have to use much more sophisticated techniques than that. And so it's a very live, real, interesting debate. And the big message is both sides have to have the humility to recognize they can learn from the other. You know, even at Harvard, we have a mentoring program where you sign up if you're a new faculty. When I started, I signed up for a mentoring with an older faculty, but I quickly learned something really cool, which is they have a reverse mentoring program as well. In other words, the oldest faculty get mentored by the incoming faculty. And, um, and you might, some people think, well, wait, you're supposedly like the leading person on this topic. Why should you be mentored by a young person with no experience? Well, guess what? Like they probably have been reading journals that didn't even exist when the older faculty got their PhDs, right? They're dealing with a world and thinking about a world in a way that's it's totally different than the world you grew up in when you were that age. So actually anything less than reverse mentoring seems like it doesn't underline the very message we're trying to send, which is that constant reinvestment in checking oneself's assumptions and growing however experienced you are as a leader. So as a, as a follow-up to what you just said then, Rob, how do leaders and how should leaders then bring people in teams, multi-generational people in teams together so that there is some sort of um, understanding and collaboration um, and understanding in that everyone has something to bring. Everybody has something to contribute, whether you've been in an organization six months or 60 years, we all have something that we can contribute to the larger cause. And, and what do leaders need to be doing to be able to bring that best out of their, the folks who work for them or work with them? Yeah, again, great question. Um, so a few things to say about that. One is that, um, so, so, so the first thing I'll just repeat, which we, we always insist on building that culture of learning and humility and like that growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset. Some of you may be familiar with that term, which is really big in business right now. Uh, Carol Dweck from Stanford wrote a book called Mindset and her essence of her argument is that we, if we have a growth mindset that we can constantly learn and improve rather than a fixed mindset, which is so-and-so is smart, so-and-so is good at this, I've always been good at that, then it's this all or nothing binary way of thinking. So instilling a growth mindset culture, which is that humility and curiosity and inquiry-based way of thinking. On a more concrete level, as to your question, you have a team of people and you know, maybe it's intergenerational differences and on top of that, it could be 
regional in the U.S., you know, there's all kinds of divisions, northerner versus southerner, inner city, and, uh, you know, rural, of course, there's race and gender and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think this is always a question. It's always going to be present in any team that you run. Um, I even tell people like you might, even if you, if you're Harvard's in Cambridge, Mass, even if you just work down the street in the local city hall for Cambridge and never went one mile further from the university classroom, you have to deal with all these different kinds of people. You know, you can, you can't get away from it. So it has to be managed. There's a lot of specific tools out there that I think can be really helpful in this way. I'm going to share with you, um, I can share afterwards here a chapter from a great book that's just called Wiser by Sunstein and Hasty, And they talk about several different approaches you can use in a group setting where people disagree about things to try and bring the best out of people. So I'll just share a couple real quick. One is that you probably have heard of um, devil's advocate, which is when you tell someone to assign them the role of playing the opposite of the approach that you're trying to make. Like what would a devil's advocate say about this? Turns out that that's not that effective because people know that you're playing the role of devil's advocate. They don't quite believe you and they don't really take it very seriously. But if you assign a couple of people or a small team to play that role, they call it red teaming. Research shows that that's actually way more effective because now you're really pushed to challenge your views. And the people in the devil's advocate team, the red team, start to take it seriously. And they're like, well, wait, what's another hole in the argument? What's another way to look at it? And that actually really pushes everybody to rethink their assumptions, you know, challenge their assumptions. Um, Another one he talks about is the, um, the idea of role assignment. So often people don't feel empowered to speak up at a meeting because they'll, they'll follow the social cues that are informal. And they're looking around to see, well, who's, did the most senior person speak yet? Did anyone who looks like me speak yet? Um, and that leads us to be self-silencing somehow. And the, and the boss can always say, hey, look, anyone can speak anytime, right? How many of you have had a boss who says, my door's open anytime, right? Anytime, just come in. Um, it's so easy to say that, right? I mean, you're laughing at yourselves now, I'm sure, because, but then when someone does go to their door and they're dismissive or they're rude or they're busy or they're distracted, you're like, mm, screw that, I'm not gonna go bother and talk to them again. And now you have self-silencing again and you're not getting a diversity of opinions, even though you say you will. So assigning people some individual roles, often around their expertise, really encourages their participation beforehand. So if I say, Paulo, like, I really want you to look at my proposal that I'm making as the boss or that we've come up with as a team. And I really want you to look at it from the perspective of, you know, um, is this defensible from a, uh, let's just say, uh, efficiency budgeting point of view or from a public relations point of view or from an internal, we did these internal surveys on gender equity or diversity or around disability access or um, investment in the community. Uh, how does my proposal stand up? I'm asking you to just shred it from that perspective. You're way more likely to do that because you believe that they're serious about it and you've been empowered to do that. But it's not um, something a lot of leaders think to do. There's several other suggestions as well. I don't know, we don't have a lot of time for more questions. So I'll share some, another uh, reading about that so people can dig deeper if they want to. Sure. So, you know, in, in this, in the last couple of weeks, what we've been seeing, and there've been quite a couple of articles, right? A, a blog piece in Medium, the Wall Street Journal, um, had an article out earlier this week that talked about um, how difficult this social, the, the movement that we are in today is for black professionals in particular, mm -hmm. um, and how um, many black professionals kind of go to work in some way acting as if there is no impact to them, either emotionally 
or any other way um, around what we're seeing that's going on outside of our door, in our community sometimes, et cetera. And so um, one of the questions that we have is that, you know, many of our companies may have internal and intranets where, you know, employees can kind of communicate with one another um, about what's going on and what their experiences would be. And um, this particular person is saying, you know, that they're concerned, right, that it could impact the long-term view of employees, right? So how do you balance um, being able to communicate really openly and authentically about how you feel about, for example, um, the murder of George Floyd and still understanding what are the company norms and that organizational culture? Or, or, or you, should you be completely aware and say nothing or you know, kind of push the envelope? What do, what do you think about that? This is a really, really very live, difficult, question. And it's a very emotional question for a lot of us, I think, you know, I think it's really tough to be a black professional in the US. Like there's so many layers of hidden burdens that you take on board. And I will also hasten to admit that there's other categories of diversity that that's also true, of course. Um, but just for our discussion today, I mean, you know, all of you, I bet many of you certainly I have experiencing right now, even today, um, I'm inundated with communications from people about well, how are you feeling, which I appreciate is great. Uh, what's your view on what's going on? You know, I also appreciate the question, that's great. I've almost any organization I've had the fleeting, most fleeting contact with over the last 25 years is reaching out like, what was it like when you were here? What could we have done better? You know, this is remarkable. I mean, this is phenomenal that there's this opening of a discussion. But the first thing is, first of all, sheer volume of like the weight that that puts on us to be, you know, obligated to have an answer to all this stuff is a pretty big burden. And for many of you, I know for me, I'm expected to produce exactly what I was expected to produce before COVID-19 and unemployment crisis and you know the protests on the streets and George Floyd, Floyd is, 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 hasn't changed. My, no one said, well, listen, we're gonna give you 80% of your workload now, Rob, just given everything going on. You gotta do it all still. So this is a really tough, unfair, maybe not the right word unfair, but like it's certainly an unevenly distributed burden, let's say that, that's actually the right way to say it. It's totally great that everyone's reaching out, you know? So that's hard. And then you're encouraged to be really honest and open like you're saying here. And I think this is where it gets to be a tough judgment call that you have to be very personally comfortable with making. And so I'm not here to push people into a zone of um, taking careless risks. The consequences can be really real for a black person to speak up honestly about race unfiltered is um, a serious thing to do. So the consequences are real. At the same time, if I'm holding back too much, there's that should tell you something. If you're too afraid to say anything at all ever um, because of the consequences in your job, in your company, I mean, I think that's not a great sign. And you should probably maybe evaluate whether you're interpreting it correctly. This might be that first P of perception question, you know. Um, I, when I've worked in some of these big oil industry companies, um, but lots of companies, I would say, that have been around for a while and that are big and established, um, and even small companies, there's a sense that like, I can't speak out because if I do, I'll be branded this kind of person or that kind of person. I'll be seen as a troublemaker. I'll be seen as going up against management, right? And I'll be, so, usually when I coach people, I say, well, then what would happen? Oh, well, then, you know, you're in trouble. The review comes and and you're gonna get a low score. And then what's gonna happen? Well, you know, it's gonna affect your job prospects. And I'm like, okay, keep going. And, you know, at some point our minds just run away with like, and then I'm gonna be like, you know, posted to do a punishment posting. And then I'm gonna be fired. Then I'm gonna die alone in a ditch in poverty. And like, we let our minds run so far down the road of like, you know, I can't say anything ever. 
because the consequences are too great, that that wouldn't be a healthy place to be either, right? Mm -hmm. So just unfiltered ranting or never say anything are obviously the two extremes we don't want to go for. I personally feel like if I can be true to what I basically stand for every day. And when I go into work and people want an honest, sincere, constructive opinion, um, I'm with them, but willing to be a challenging friend. I find that's a comfortable place to be as long as you're respectful and straight with people. Um, and, and I'm not, and I'm definitely not in a place always where I'm like guaranteed, uh, you know, a job. Like I could definitely lose my job if I push it, but I still feel like I have to live in a space that I feel I'm empowered enough to say what I really want to say. And if I can't do that, I both have to check my own assumptions and check the environment I'm in to see if that's the place that's right for me. Because at some point, if I'm totally self-silenced all day long because of who I am as a black man, then that's a real problem. And that's partially on me to some extent to manage that. But it's a really tough dilemma. I hear you. So here's, a, here's another question, and thank you so much for that response. You're giving us a lot to think about and talk about. Um, you talked a little bit about the process phase and leadership. Um, and so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the privilege factor and what can we do to remove that privilege factor um, when we are managing our teams and trying to accommodate all of our teams. Members. I think the, the, the main thing is for you to push yourself to ask the question, what's the impact of the particular process choice that I'm making right now with my team. And it really doesn't get smaller. Like there's no point where it's too small to not think about it. Like it affects everything, you know? If we have this, let's say this call we're on right now and let's imagine you're my, all of you report to me. If I say, okay, um, just send me an email by Friday about what your recommendation is. Let me ask you like, who am I privileging now? Who's gonna be likely to respond? People who respond to emails quickly, who express themselves more comfortably in a written format, right? Um, now, if I say, okay, I'm gonna take 10 minutes at the end of this call for my team, and I just want you to raise your hand and just shout, you know, just give me your initial thoughts to my proposal. What do you think? If I take that process choice, who have I privileged now? People who are comfortable just raising their hand and speaking out loud, you know? And if I miss people who didn't have anything to say, because I can say, well, look, I gave them a chance. I told anyone they could raise their hand and they didn't raise their hand. Well, I've actually just changed the kind of data set I'm gonna get. And some of those people I know for a fact would not take the time to write some email at the end of the week, but they would raise their hand and have a lot to say on the spot, right? And you can just keep going down the line. Almost any process choice you make, you're privileging some and, and, and hurting others. Like it's a big deal if you're an introvert to speak on a call with three, 300 people and critique the boss, you know? Um, for some people, that's their, they wake up and they, before their feet hit the ground, they're criticizing <laughs> the thoughts and everyone else, maybe. So, um, so I think it's all about the thoughtfulness you, um, so number one, the thoughtfulness you have about the process choices you're making and the impact it has. Number two, I think being explicit about the reasoning behind your process choice, uh, even in your own mind, because, um, it's not just a random thing. Like, you know, you're, 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 you're making a judgment about this is more important to me. Like breadth of feedback is more important than the intensity of the quality of the feedback, for example. Um, and I want to get as many views as possible. Um, now, if I'm in an airline industry and I'm looking, or say in your world, you know, the security and safety issues of some of the facilities are really important. And you don't want just like a broad community view on the thickness of the wall for containing a certain kind of chemical. That's not an opinion based thing, right? But for things where you're worried about perspectives and diversity and buy-in and people feeling confident in their roles, that is where you really do want a minimum breadth. And so 
explicit about, you know, think about your process choices, be explicit about why that choice, and then communicate your reasoning out to everybody. It's hard to over communicate on process. I think that's one of those things that we overlook as leaders. Why we're doing what we're doing can be as important, if not more important to people than the actual outcome you get in the end. So that's some quick thoughts on keeping that in mind. Okay, so this is gonna be our last question. Um, I'd love to tell you it's a softball. I'm not sure it's a softball. You'll get to decide <laughs> on that one. The last one um, barely are. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, we, we have had now since uh, January, so six months of thing after thing after thing after thing in this country from uh, COVID to what someone described yesterday as voter suppression in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so what I, I'd be interesting to hear from you is who are those leaders? Who are the people that stand out, whether it's in um, public health, uh, racial, social justice, equity, government, policymakers? Who are those folks that um, you look at and you say, wow, this person is really doing it the right way? Well, let me give you an example about, so in some cases, it's a little too early to tell right now in these recent weeks, but let me give you something that's a little similar, but just a little earlier in time that we have a fuller picture of. And so one person that we're, I'm really interested in as a leader and as example is someone named Tarana Burke. I'm not sure how, how well everybody knows, but the founder of the Me Too movement. And she's also got a big voice on a range of different aspects of equity and, um, you know, African-American treatment in this country, et cetera. Um, but what's interesting about her is so she had this back to the 4P framework, right? She, she had this challenge of people don't recognize the impact, especially for African-American girls of sexual assault in that particular topic. But what she did, I think, is broadly applicable, which is let's understand all the different perspectives on this. Some people see it as a we're trying to punish wrongdoers from the past and other people say it's in, in you know, you're accusing innocent people unfairly and other people say it's about victimhood and others say it's survivorship. And so lots of different perspectives. What she did was set up a process, a remarkable online process to bring so many people on board, thinking about that human and emotional impact. People remember to this day scrolling through their feeds and seeing hashtag me too from all these women they knew and it was mind blowing for some people. Other people are like, how did you possibly not know this? And now other people are blown away by it. And then her story is, this is not about punishment. Yes, Harvey Weinstein was actually the end of that process and a lot of people related those two together. And that was a success for people in that movement, but it wasn't about punishment. It was, she would say it's liberating what's inside of you as someone who's dealt with all forms of pain that's been inflicted on you by external people throughout your life. It's about growing and surviving and overcoming that and getting what's inside of you out that shouldn't be there. That's her projection of the vision, right? And that was so powerfully received by a lot of people. It had a huge impact. And this, by the way, this isn't a person who had some big senior position with lots of money running lots of employees, right? So a good example of leadership can come be projected and exercised by anyone in a movement like this. And you're starting to see some emerging leaders who are thinking about it that way. And again, they're not heads of state and CEOs necessarily. They're just people who are trying to get involved and make a difference about what they believe in. And with that, thank you so much, Rob. This was fantastic. I'm sorry that we can't um, get to all of your questions. I see that we have a pretty um, active chat, which is what we wanted. What I will say to all of you on the line is first, thank you so much for joining us for our first Wednesdays with Abe series. I promise you that the next eight weeks um, leading up to the annual conference, we'll have more great content, um, but that this will not be the first time that we talk about this subject. We are going to delve into this and talk about this some more. Um, 
Finally, next week, June 17th, we are going to be talking about pandemic economics. Um, and so again, Wednesday, two o'clock Eastern time, pandemic economics. Um, August 18th through 20th, we are taking it to the cloud with Abe 2020. Hope to see you all there. Um, please fill out our survey that you should receive. Let us know what more you, we can do to support you as our members. And finally, thank you so much to our sponsor, Chevron, our presenting sponsor, our global sponsors, BP and Edison International, and all the other sponsors who have supported this association um, in, quite frankly, a time that's even been tough for us. And so with that, I thank you all for being here. Rob, thank you again so much for your words, your thoughtfulness, and giving us a lot of guidance and things to think about. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Look forward to talking with you when things slow down a bit, um, which looks like it may be 2021 at the rate we're going, but hopefully we'll get there. Um, and thank and that's- you so much. It was great to be with all of you. And I really wish you all the best of luck in this difficult time right now. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Have a great rest of the day.